uh, chapter 6, verse 11. If you have your Bibles, if you don't, no problem. Um, verses will be shown up there at the relevant time. So the next slide is a photograph of Victor Emile Frankel. He was born in 1905, and 37 years later, just nine months after he got married, he was sent off to the concentration camps by the Nazis. And he was in those camps for three years, spent time in four different camps, including some of the worst, um, Bergen-Belsen and Auschwitz as well. And at the end of the three years, he was the only member of his family left alive. He went into the camps with his mum and his dad, his brother and his wife, and he came out alone. And the interesting thing about Frankel was that before he went into the camps, he was a qualified neurologist and a psychiatrist. And afterwards, he reflected on his experiences in the camps, and he wrote a book entitled Man's Search for Meaning. And Professor Muldoon, he's a theologian and author, made the following comment on the book, and I'm just going to read directly from what he said. Frankel was a sober realist. He details the horrors of Auschwitz and the moral corruption of those who worked there. His philosophy was not about wishing away problems or pretending that they did not exist, but rather to acknowledge them in their grim reality. Yet despite this realism, or rather because of it, he describes how holding on to hope was literally a life or death choice. Those who lost hope, he said, developed a certain look in their eye, a fatalism that inevitably ended in death. And so Viktor Frankl is very famous for having said, whoever was still alive had a reason for hope. I'd like to ask you a question today. What is your reason for hope? I know that the circumstances we've been referring to are very extreme, but nevertheless, these truths still hold for us today. Unless you have something to hope for, life is meaningless. Another great quote by Frankel, he said, when a person can't find a deep sense of meaning, they distract themselves with pleasure. And I'm, I think that is just such an excellent commentary on our world today. People deep down know that they don't have any real meaning in life, because if you look at the post-secular worldview, if you, if you look at the um, worldview that is pinned on evolution, there is no real meaning in life. And so to cope with that, people look for distractions, and we're all tempted to do it. We all end up getting distracted by very many different things, whether it's money and the pleasure that it brings, whether it's work, whether it's our health. But you know, what's going to happen when life brings suffering? Or what's going to happen when we can't afford the pleasures that we've become accustomed to or when our bodies are not healthy enough to enjoy them anymore? I'm just so grateful that Christianity is not a frilly, fair-weather religion. As Christians, we can have, in the words of what we're going to read today, the full assurance of hope until the end. We have, folks, a reason for hope. And because we have a reason for hope, we can find meaning in life even when things are not going as expected. And isn't that just the way life turns out so often? Things don't turn out the way we were expected. And in fact, if we want a pursuit, a meaningful life, 
pursue a meaningful life, it often leads to discomfort. It often leads to suffering. Think of those people who are reaching out to the Beja and who are in Khartoum at the moment. Because we pursue meaning by following Jesus, we must follow in his footsteps and we must follow in the footsteps of others who have gone before us in the faith. We must live in the same way that they lived and they lived a life of self-denial for the sake of others and for the sake of honoring and glorifying God. What did Jesus say? He said, unless a man is prepared to pick up his cross daily and carry it, he's not worthy of me. And picking up a cross is a picture of denial. That big cross piece that Jesus carried was heavy and uncomfortable. It had sharp edges in it, on it, and it had splinters as well. You know, let's start going back a little bit to the Hebrews, and we're going to read from verse 11 through to verse 20. So let me do that for you. Um, it won't be up there in a chunk, but as we come to each verse in the preach, uh, it'll, it'll be up there. So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. And he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. He's just been talking about how the Hebrews have been earnest in working for God and in serving other people. So he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope to the end, so that you may not be sluggish or lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, aren't those important, faith and patience, inherit the promises. We need faith and we need patience in order to inherit a promise. You need to believe that the person who's given you the promise is dependable. And then a promise is by nature something that happens in the future. And so we have to wait until the promise is delivered upon. Verse 13. For one God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, in other words, the hope set before us, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the Hebrews in general um, had been living a life that was characterized by hope. And the reason why the writer could see that they had hope is because they were prepared to persevere through some difficulties and hardship. So because they were following God and swearing allegiance to Jesus, it brought them into the firing line of the Roman Empire. And so life was uncomfortable for them and also from Jews who felt that Christianities were a threat. And so they were living this life of godly self-denial and they were 
serving their fellow Christians. Isn't it interesting that that is the one characteristic that the writer latches onto? They served other Christians. They loved members in the family. There's no chance that we're going to love people outside of the family if we're not even showing love to people inside the family. And so he carries on there and he says, For God is not as just unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And then he says an interesting thing. He says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope. So the implication here is that in general everybody was doing what he desired and what he thought was positive and healthy, but there were some who were maybe inclined to pull back because of the persecution that they were experiencing, and there were maybe some that had fallen back a little bit. And so he says, don't do it. You need to hold on. To, you need to carry on doing those things because those things are hand in glove with holding on to a full assurance of hope until the end. Don't you love those words? The full assurance of hope until the end. I, I like being with people who are assured, who are confident, not necessarily in themselves, but in something that is greater than themselves. Have you ever come to um, a, a vehicle accident or something, or some sort of a crisis, and suddenly you realize that there's someone there who in a sense is greater than you because they've got medical expertise or they've done this sort of thing before, and you, you have the sense of assurance. We want to have the assurance of hope until the end. So I'd like to talk about three things today. First of all, the foundation of hope. What is our hope actually built on? Then the focus of hope, what is it? What is this hope that we're focusing on? And then thirdly, the fruits of hope. I was quite pleased with the fact that they all began with F. Isn't that clever? And I came up with it myself. <laughs> so the foundation of hope. At the, the heart of every hope is a promise. Isn't that right? We put our hope in a promise. But we need to make sure that we know who has made the promise because a promise is only as good as the person who makes the promise. Is the, maker, the, the promise maker honest? Is he or she a person of integrity? And the problem is that many times we don't actually know. When someone says, um, if you bring your car to me, I'll put in genuine car, uh, parts and uh, you can collect it in, three, in two weeks' time. Can we believe that promise? Is there any integrity? And to try and overcome that problem of integrity, ancient legal systems required a witness to swear an oath. So to swear by something that was greater than themselves. Look at verse 16 there. It says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes talking about legal disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So before I bear testimony, I swear an oath that my testimony is true. And even up until fairly recently, in many legal systems around the world, you would put your hand on the Bible and you say, what I'm about to say is the truth, it's the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And we're swearing on the Bible because that is a symbol of something that is greater than ourselves. 
But the incredible thing about God is that there is nobody higher than him. There's nobody greater than him. So he actually swears by himself. For when, verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, we'll look at the circumstances surrounding this shortly, when he made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And you might think, well, what is the point of that? This is not to say that God was stooping to a human system in order to be believed. No, he wasn't doing that. Instead, what he was doing was he was comparing the integrity of man with his own integrity. A man is not dependable. So he must swear by something that's more reliable. Something or someone with more integrity than himself. But because God is who he is, he is utterly dependable. He doesn't need to do this. And of course, we can see evidence of the character and the nature of God, even if we just look around at creation. He is powerful. He's amazing. He's big. God can swear by himself because there is no one greater by whom to swear. So where do we find God doing this? Let's go a little bit into the back story here. When Abraham was 75 years old, God made a promise to him. Let's read about it. It'll be up there. Now the Lord said to Abraham, at that stage he hadn't been given his new name. When God, in a sense, changed Abram, he gave him a new name as well. And remember, Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. So the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and make your kindred and your father's house, a big part, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation implying that he would have many descendants. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We're experiencing that blessing today through Abraham. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, and this is key, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Genesis 12, 1 to 4. So God's promise, I will make you into a great nation. In other words, you're going to have lots and lots of descendants. And presumably, you're going to have some children through whom those descendants will come. But year after year passed, and Abraham and Sarah didn't fall pregnant. In fact, they waited for 25 years. That's a long time. Look at Genesis 21, verse 5. Abram was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. It's no wonder that in verse 15 in today's passage, it tells us that Abraham had to wait patiently. Are you prepared to wait patiently for the promises of God? You know, I often think of, um, I, you know, in my work and just, just in life, I often spend time with elderly people who are in the last chapter of their lives Oh, and it can be so hard. That last six months, the last month, the last week, the last few days, waiting for the delivery of the promise of their resurrection bodies. We need to be patient. We need to encourage people um, who are waiting for a promise to be delivered. However, when Isaac had grown up into a young man, 
We know this because it says in the Bible that he was strong enough to carry the wood for a sacrifice. God did the unthinkable thing. He asked Abraham to kill Isaac as a sacrifice of worship. And because of his obedience and belief in the promise, Abraham was prepared to do that. He was prepared to go the whole way. Folks, this is a picture of how God sometimes asks us to sacrifice things that are very important to us for the sake of obedience to Him and for the sake of His honor and for the sake of His glory. I love this passage, Hebrews 11:17 to 19. I hope that we will be characterized by the same kind of faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I mean, this is the only means, apparently, by which he's going to have descendants, through whom the promise will be delivered. But he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so, as it turns out, Abraham didn't have to kill Isaac. How did he receive him back? Well, let's just read. I think it's just best to read it straight from the Bible rather than me telling it to you. So Genesis 22, 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. It's really hard to sacrifice things that mean a lot to us for God's sake. And then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Sometimes we need, not necessarily to prove it to God, for it to be proven to ourselves that we respect God by giving up things that he asks us sometimes to give up. Sometimes we don't end up with the health that we were hoping or expecting or the job, whatever it is. He says here, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And you know, the Bible makes it clear that that mountain on which the sacrifice was due to happen is the same mountain on which Jesus was crucified on our behalf. It's no wonder that it's called the mount of the Lord. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And then verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, and this is where the, the, the oath comes in, By myself, I have sworn. He takes an oath, an oath before he makes a promise. Declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And here comes the promise again. I will surely multiply your offspring and so on and so forth. So, now that we know the circumstances leading up to when God swore this oath by himself... Um, and it's important to know that background because, you know, the writer wants us to learn something from the example of Abraham, and we're going to come back to that shortly. 
But for the moment, we must go back to the issue of God swearing by himself and what the writer actually wants us to learn from it. So look at verse 17. This is where the, the writer tells us what he wants us to learn from that incident of God swearing by himself. So when God decided to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purposes, he guaranteed it with an oath. What was the purpose of that oath? So that by two unchangeable things, we would have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Folks, we, we need to hold fast to this hope. And it's going to be a struggle. I can tell you there's certain times in your life, I know there's been times in my life, when it's been a struggle to hold on to hope. And we need something to encourage us to hold on to hope. And it's these two unchangeable things that will encourage us to hold on to hope. But what are they? They come there in verse 17. Do you see the word promise and the unchangeable character of his purpose? So God was about to make a promise. That was the first thing that was unchangeable because it was based on his unchangeable purpose. God has a purpose for everything. And his purpose doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. So there's the one unchangeable thing. And then the second unchangeable thing was the oath. He swore by himself. And so when you take these two things together, they're actually pointing to one thing. And what, what are they pointing to? They are pointing to the utter dependability of God. He is completely unchangeable. Nothing will ever change him. He is everlasting. He is omnipotent. He knows everything. When he says something, we can take that promise to the bank because we know that he is dependable. So folks, that is the foundation of our hope. It's not some sort of a hope that is along the lines of, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow because the weatherman promised X, Y, and Z, or I hope that my car will be ready at 9 o'clock because the mechanic said it would be ready. These things are different kinds of hopes because they are subject to risk. But our hope is not subject to any risk because it is based on the promises of a dependable God. So that's the, the foundation of our hope. What about the focus of our hope? And the writer gives us a hint um, as to the nature of our hope in that it has to do with fleeing from refuge. Can you see that there in verse 18? It says, we who have fled for refuge. Our problem as humans is that unless something is done about the fact that we've all rebelled against God, we're going to be put to death. Now remember that death is an eternal separation from God. And when we rebelled against God, what we were saying was, we don't want your presence. We don't want you to be around when we do X, Y, and Z, because we know that it doesn't please you. And so God says, well, the punishment for that is an eternal separation from my presence. It's what you ask for, it's what you'll get. And so we are all on the run from the wrath of God because of what we've done. And so we actually need to run into a place of refuge. And the commentators believe that what the writer had in mind here, because of the words that he was using, fled to a place of refuge, 
he, was, he had in mind what happened in the Old Testament, which was if I was involved in an accident and I accidentally killed somebody, um, that person's family would now have the right as, an aven as avengers to kill me. So what you would do is you would run, you would flee from the avenger to the temple and hold on to the horns of the altar. There was an altar in the temple where the sacrifices were made and there were these moldings on the side that looked like horns and you went and you held on to those and until your innocence was proven either way, nobody could kill you. And so that's what we do. We run to the altar and we hold fast to the hope that God will find us innocent because Jesus was sacrificed on the altar in our place. And so that's the focus of our hope. In, a, in broad terms, it's refuge from God's wrath. But we need to sharpen that focus a little bit. Let's look at the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This is perhaps one of my most favorite passages in the Bible. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. A pioneer, if you like, a trailblazer, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Just don't worry too much about that name, we'll come back to it. There was this massive, heavy curtain that covered the entrance to the inner place in the temple. It was also known as the Holy of Holies. And in the inner place was the Ark of the Covenant with two angels molded into its lid and their wings met across the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Bible tells us that this was the place where God was enthroned on earth at the time. So if you went into the inner place, you were going into the very throne room of the king of the universe. And at that time, the only person who could do that was the high priest. He could only, there was only one man on earth at any one time who could go into that place, and he could only do it once a year. But when Jesus died on the cross, we're told in the, in the Gospels that that curtain was torn in half. And so that is a symbol of the fact that we can now come in to the Holy of Holies right into the inner place. We come right into that seeking place why do we do it? Because we're seeking refuge from God's wrath and he finds us innocent because we've put our faith in Jesus Christ. We enter God's presence because we have a high priest. It's the only way we can enter that place is because we are in Christ and he brings us into the holy place. And of course, that promise has been partially delivered in the sense that the Bible tells us we are now seated with Christ in heavenly places. The Bible tells us that we can enter the throne room of grace with confidence. We saw that earlier in Hebrews, didn't we? <laughs> it's, it's so beautiful. We can enter that place. But it's only fully delivered to us, this promise, when, once we've died and crossed the finish line, when we'll be given our resurrection bodies and the, the promise is fully delivered. So we've looked at the foundation of the folk, uh, focus, the, the, the uh, what was it? The foundation, the focus. <laughs> Let's have a look at the fruits of this hope. Hope 
enables us to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And of course the primary example that the writer had in mind here was Abraham. So let's just look at three different fruits of hope. The first one is godliness. I think it's significant that at the first part of the passage he, he links holding on to hope with godly behavior, being obedient to God and serving and loving the saints. So this hope that we have is tied up in the way that we live. And when we live in a way that pleases and honors God, it actually stokes up our hope, but we also need the hope to live in that way as well. And so this promotes and it stimulates godly behavior. And that godly behavior it always starts with faith, doesn't it? Faith in the promises of God. And then perseverance, that we're prepared to wait and grit our teeth, sometimes in difficult circumstances, until we receive the promise. So, godly behavior, perseverance, and then the last one is steadfastness. This is my favorite. The third fruit of Christian hope is that it provides a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. You know, unless your soul is anchored in that inner place, you are going to be adrift in life. And so many people are. And we see the evidence of them being adrift, of the fact that they're not anchored in the inner place, in the presence of God. I inherited this little blue sports car from my dad when he passed away. And some of you might have seen it parked at the church garage. It's there in a, like a lean-to. And at this time of year, golden orb spiders always come and spin their webs. They're the most beautiful, intricate webs, and they work so hard to produce them. And obviously these spiders look at the car, and they think, well, relative to myself, this thing is massive, it'll never move. I don't know whether spiders do think like that, but they anchor it to the car. And of course, it's perfectly anchored there until I get in and turn the key in the ignition and drive off, and then they're left in tatters. You know, when we anchor our souls to anything other than Jesus there in the inner place, if we try to anchor them to money or comfort or relationships or health, we're going to end up in tatters. Those things are all good, and they're all good things that God gives us, but we mustn't depend on them as, as anchors for the soul. And make mo no mistake, folks, we do. We need an anchor because we're inclined to drift. What did, what did he say in Hebrews 2.1? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And of course, what we heard was the word about Jesus. And it's the word about Jesus that brings us into the inner place through faith. We need it lest we drift away from it. Folk, we need hope that will anchor our souls during the storms of life. And so I'd just like to ask this question. Words from a hymn. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife, when the strong tides lift and the, and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? Such an important question. Do you know the answer to that? 
And so what I'd like us to do in the next slide, let's read this together. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Isn't that good? Let's say it again. Let's just repeat it for the sake of one another, even if it's not for yourself. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Let's just pray. Father God, we thank you for these things. And for those who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus, we just want to reaffirm that we've put our hope in you. We hope in you and we want to hold on to that hope, that promise of eternal life, um, being in the presence of God for eternity. We want to hold on to that forever. We thank you that we've been able to take refuge at the altar uh, from the punishment that we all deserve and that we are found innocent because Jesus was sacrificed on that altar. And then also for those who are just wondering, could this be true? Could this all be true? Maybe, I, maybe you don't understand all of what Ian, or what I've been saying, or what we've been singing about today, or what's been going on here, but, but just keep asking that question. Could it be true? Keep pursuing Keep, keep looking, keep coming to church, keep singing the hymns, keep reading the Bible. And I just trust that God will stir up faith in your heart to put your hope and your trust in this anchor for your soul. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.